Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi, welcome back to our series on the history of Zionism and the history of Israel, kind of at a 30,000 foot level, just doing a very quick sweep to give people an opportunity to learn how the history of Israel unfolds. In our previous segment, we talked about the Peel Commission and its desire to split up the land of Israel between a Jewish state and an Arab state in 1937, uh, how the Jewish community was very disappointed in the results of the Peel Commission, uh, but chose to accept it. The Arab community was very unhappy with the results of the Peel Commission and chose to reject it. Uh, and at the end of the day, of course, we talked also about how uh, the Peel Commission led to an increase in Arab violence. So what we're gonna pick up today is with the three paramilitary groups that begin to develop inside the Yeshuv, that term for the pre-state Jewish community in Palestine. We'll talk about the three paramilitary groups that developed because they will eventually become wrapped up into what will become the IDF, Israel's army. Uh, but even at this point, 10 years before Israel's created, they play an incredibly important part in directing where the history is going to go. There were really three paramilitary groups at that time. The biggest one, which numbered between some 40 and 60,000 people, uh, was the Haganah, the defense, as it was called. And it was run by the major Zionist party in Palestine at that point, which was the labor Zionists. Uh, it was David Ben-Gurion's party. David Ben-Gurion will eventually become the first prime minister, but he's already the titular head of the, uh, of the whole Yeshuv. Anyway, and under his command is this very large organization called the Haganah, which actually has a strike force very well known called the Palmach. There's a second organization which is much smaller, it numbers at its max probably about 5,000 people, called the Etzel, which had been founded by Zev Jabotinsky, who as we saw a few segments ago was the founder of revisionist Zionism. The Irgun Tzva'i Le'umi, which abbreviated is Etzel, meant the National Military Organization. How did they differ from the Haganah? They differed from the Haganah in a number of ways. They were much more willing to take preemptive actions against Arabs to prevent attacks on Jews, whereas the Haganah was usually mostly only willing to try to defend Jews as attacks were happening or to uh, intervene uh, perhaps a little bit afterwards and take some steps to make sure that it didn't happen again. Uh, it's run by Menachem Begin, a personality who will become exceedingly important in the course of Israel's history. He will eventually become Israel's sixth prime minister. Begin arrives in Palestine in 1942, having run Beitar, the youth movement of revisionist Zionism in Poland. He was then imprisoned by the Soviets. He made his way to Palestine in a very circuitous way, which we don't have time to go into in this brief overview. But he gets to Palestine in, nine, in the spring of 1942, 
And relatively soon thereafter, not immediately, but relatively soon thereafter, he takes the command of the Irgun. So you have Ben-Gurion at the head of the Haganah, you have Menachem Begin at the head of the Irgun, and then you have a much smaller, more radical group, which is willing not only to attack civilians, attack Arabs, and attack the British. Uh, it's a much more kind of radical terrorist organization, really. Uh, and that's called the Lechi. It's, just, it's an abbreviation for Lochamei Cherut Yisrael, which stands for the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. It was run originally by a very interesting romantic poet named Avraham Stern, uh, but Stern was killed by the British, and after Stern, the Lechi was run by Yitzhak Shamir, who will himself become the seventh prime minister of the state of Israel. So what's interesting here is that the Haganah is essentially run indirectly by David Ben-Gurion. He will become Israel's first prime minister. Uh, the Etzel is run by Menachem Begin. He'll become the sixth prime minister. And the Lechi is run by uh, Yitzhak Shamir, who will become the seventh prime minister. In other words, all of these paramilitary figures, Ben-Gurion was less of a paramilitary figure, will become exceedingly important in Israeli politics as the country develops. But Menachem Begin, who's the one who runs the Irgun, which is the revisionist organization, gets to Palestine in 1942. He very soon announces his plan when he takes over the Irgun. Don't forget, we're now in the middle of the Second World War. The people in the Yeshuv are keenly aware that European Jewry is being destroyed. When they had first heard that the Nazis were going to try to wipe out Polish Jewry, they actually literally laughed. And they said, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's three million Polish Jews. You can't kill three million people. Of course, you can kill three million people, as they were finding out. And by the spring of 1942 and late in 1942, it's very clear that not only does Hitler intend to try to do it, he's actually succeeding. And the question in the Yeshuv becomes, what can we do here in Palestine to try to help the Jews of Europe. And Begin, who's now not quite yet the head of the Irgun, but will soon become the head of the Irgun, announces that what they really need to do is to begin attacking British soldiers in Palestine. He makes what seems to be a very strange argument. He says, if you want to defend the Jews in Europe, what you need to do is attack the British soldiers in Palestine. Now, what in the world is the logic of that? He said, it's very simple. One of the reasons that the Jews in Europe aren't fleeing anywhere is because they have nowhere to go. The United States has sealed its borders. Canada has sealed its borders. Europe is obviously burning. Palestine's borders, as we talked about last time, are sealed by the British. The only way to give the European Jews an incentive to flee and to try to save themselves is to attack the British so that they begin to relent and allow Jewish immigration. Now that was becoming increasingly important because in 1939, the British had issued what was called the McDonald White Paper in response to tremendous Arab pressure. And we talked about the Arab discomfort with the increasing number of Jews who are fleeing Europe and coming to Palestine. And again, they're fleeing Europe and coming to Palestine now because by 1924, America's shores are closed mostly to immigrants. So they really have basically nowhere else to go when they're coming to Palestine because that is their long-standing dream and because everything else is closed. And the McDonald White Paper kind of gives in to Arab pressure, and it says that it's going to limit Jewish immigration to 75,000 people over a five-year period. And again, you have to remember, you cannot build a country if it's only going to have a few hundred thousand people in it. Jewish immigration was both about defending and saving the Jews who had nowhere to go from Europe, 
but it was also about getting enough Jews into Palestine so that someday the dream of a Jewish state might be realized. So the McDonald paper in 1939 said they would limit immigration to 75,000. Anything beyond that, the Arabs would actually have to agree to. And as far as the Jewish community in Palestine, as far as the Yeshuv was concerned, that was essentially revoking the Balfour Declaration. If the British had said in 1917 that His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, well then by 1939, when you're limiting Jewish immigration essentially to zero after a couple of years, what you're saying is no, we don't favor the establishment of a Jewish home in Palestine because we're not going to let enough Jews in. And that was Begin's rationale. Begin's rationale in declaring what was eventually called the revolt. The revolt against the British was, we have to hit the British hard in Palestine in order for them to relent and to begin to let Jews in. And he says explicitly when he announced this, Polish Jewry is probably already lost. But the Nazis haven't gotten to Hungary yet. We can still save Hungarian Jewry if we reach out and try to hit the British now so we open up the borders. Before we go on to what happens in the relationship between the Yeshuv and the, the British, I want to take a second to step aside and talk about a very strange and sad phenomenon that takes place during this period, which is a series of ships filled with Jews on the waters of the world that literally have nowhere to go. Many of us are familiar with the story of the St. Louis that sets sail from Europe, goes to Cuba, is not allowed into the United States territorial waters, eventually makes it back to Europe. Uh, but I want to talk about a boat that not a lot of people are familiar with these days called the Struma. It's an example of one of many, but I just think it captures perfectly the existential condition of the Jews at this particular time in history. The Struma set sail from Romania in December 1941, carrying 769 refugees for a trip to Palestine that should have taken just a few days. The ship, don't forget, it has just shy of 800 people on it has four sinks, one freshwater faucet, and eight toilets. No toilet paper, no life preservers, eight toilets for a few days with 800 people. So now you can already see that this, if this goes on for more than just a few days, it's going to be a disaster. But unfortunately, due to engine trouble, and the Struma was basically an old cattle barge that had been converted into something to ship Jews where they needed to get, uh, it stalled outside the Istanbul harbor, and it was towed into the Istanbul harbor, unable to move. The Turks did not want to let the Jews off the ship into Turkey. They radioed over to the British and said, they're making their way to Palestine. If we fix up this motor, can we send these people over to Palestine? And the British say, no, they don't want what's called surplus Jews. That's the term the British use. They don't want surplus Jews. The Americans try to intervene. Nobody will relent. The Turks don't want them. The British won't take them. The boat sits in the harbor for months. Don't forget, almost 800 people on this boat with eight toilets, four sinks. It is a horrifying situation. Food and water are running low. It's the local Jewish community in Istanbul that actually intercedes a little bit to get them some food. And finally, at a certain point, the British, the, sorry, the Turks actually say we've had enough, and almost after two months of the ship being in the Turkish harbor, uh, they order the Struma towed out of the Istanbul harbor, and they tow it into the Black Sea. And it's left in the Black Sea, unable to move. It's got 
a few less people on it now because a few pregnant women and a few very sick people had been taken off. But essentially, it's got almost 800 people on it still. No food, no water, no engine, nothing, nowhere to go, floating in the middle of the Black Sea. The Soviets, in the meantime, are determined to make sure that nobody smuggles weapons into the Soviet Union, and their submarines that were patrolling the Black Sea were told any unidentified ships have to be sunk. So sure enough, a Soviet submarine comes, fires one torpedo at the Struma, it sinks immediately, and there is only one survivor, a man who actually ended up living in Oregon for uh, the large part of his life and who died just a couple of years ago. But this situation of a Jew filled with, of a ship filled with hundreds of Jews, nowhere to go, this term surplus Jews, not a single port on the planet that will take these Jews, that's the existential condition of the Jew at the beginning of the 1940s that the Yeshuv is trying so hard to try to break. We don't have enough time to go into all of the various attacks of the Haganah and the Etzel and the Lehi, sometimes on each other, amazingly enough, but certainly on the British. We'll spend just a couple of minutes talking about what is perhaps the most important attack, which is the Irgun, Menachem Begin's organization, the Irgun's attack on the King David Hotel building in 1946. Now you might ask yourself, why in the world would they attack a hotel? They didn't attack a hotel. The King David Hotel building at that point was mostly not a hotel. It was the headquarters of the British officers in Palestine. And a few days earlier, the British had sent tens of thousands of troops all around Palestine, not only arresting lots of leaders of the various paramilitary organizations, but actually collecting lots of documents that they were going to use to then try to try and then perhaps convict and perhaps even execute the leadership of those organizations. They could probably have tried Menachem Begin, they could have tried and possibly executed Golda Meir, they could certainly have tried and prosecuted, and if they could find him, executed Menachem Begin, who had been in hiding and was the number one wanted terrorist, as far as the British were concerned, ever since he declared the revolt. Um, and they, they decide that they're going to attack the hotel. They're going to give enough warning, about a half an hour warning, before the bombs go off so everybody who is a person can get out. But they want to make sure that the people don't have time to get the evidence out of the building. They want enough time for people to leave, but not enough time for the boxes and cartons of all the evidence that the British had collected to be taken out. And they do actually make three warning calls about a half an hour before the bombs go off. They call the Palestine Post, they call the French Embassy, they call the King David building itself, and they warn there are bombs in the building, they're about to go off, get everybody out. Uh, but nobody believed them. Nobody took the, the call seriously, and contrary to what their plan had been, which was for nobody to get killed, uh, 92 people were killed in that attack. British soldiers, one Irgun soldier who was actually not able to get out of the building before the bombs went off, innocent people of all different sorts of nationalities, it created an international furor. David Ben-Gurion, who had actually not only known about the plan, but had approved the plan, denied knowing anything about it. This is part of an increasingly bitter feud between him and Menachem Begin, which we'll talk about in subsequent segments. Uh, and the international community is appalled. We don't have time now to go into all of the repercussions of this attack on the King David Hotel building in July 1946. But suffice it to say that what this did, because it was supposed to be the most heavily guarded building in Palestine protecting British officers, was to convince British citizens back in England, back in London, back in Manchester, back wherever they were, 
that whatever the government said, it could not keep British soldiers safe in Palestine. It had a very similar impact to what happened when American media networks in the middle of the Vietnam War started to show the coffins of killed military men, American soldiers, coming back to Dover Air Force Base. As long as the evening news in America spoke about numbers, numbers are very kind of abstract, but when Americans started to see these enormous cargo planes and coffins and coffins and coffins coming out of these planes, that's what changed the American attitude to the Vietnam War. And that's what begins to change the British attitude to the continued presence in Palestine. A lot of British mothers just said, I don't care what the Prime Minister says. He actually can't keep my son safe. This is ridiculous. I want the British kids out of Palestine. And this is really the beginning of the end of the British mandate. Seven months later, the British announced that they're leaving. And on May 15, 1947, the British officially turned over control of Palestine to or determine, turn over the decision about what will happen to Palestine to what's called UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. And we're going to come back to what UNSCOP decides in just a minute. But before we do that, it's important to raise, uh, I think, an interesting question that a lot of people ask, which is, if the, the Jews in the period before their statehood could have the Irgun and could have the Lehi, which would attack all kinds of places, and the Lehi willingly attacked civilians, how is that really different from Arab terrorism today? How can you, on the one hand, justify what the Irgun or the Lehi did, and at the same time say what Palestinian terrorists are doing is wrong? Now, that's a very complicated question and a super important question. I want to say, at least at this outset, the Haganah and the Irgun refused to attack civilians. There were definitely civilians who were killed in Irgun operations, but it was Menachem Begin's policy not to attack civilians. Of course, has never been the policy of Palestinian terrorists not to attack civilians. It's been their purpose to attack civilians. But then someone could say, okay, what if Palestinian terrorists right now were to say, okay, from now on, we're only going to attack Israeli soldiers. We're only going to attack Israelis who are part of the defense establishment. How would that be different from what the Irgun did? That's an even harder question. But what I would say is that the minute that the Yeshuv got an opportunity to turn itself into a state, it took that opportunity and it immediately ended all of its terrorist activity. If the Arabs in Palestine had accepted the idea of the Peel Commission in 1937 to divide the land, or the idea of the United Nations, which we're coming to in a couple of minutes, in 1947 to divide the land, or the offer of Israel to make peace in 1949, or Israel's offer to trade land for peace in 1967, and there are many other examples that we'll come to, if they had taken any of those options and then said, we're going to take statehood, and we're also going to give up terrorism, then I think you would say that there's a very similar parallel between the two. But the reality was, of course, that the Jews in the Yeshuv accepted every division of the land, even when they didn't like the maps, and the minute they got a state, ended terrorism altogether. And unfortunately, 70 years after the, the Peel Commission made its offer, the Palestinians have still not taken any of the options given to them and are continuing to have a terrorist attack against Israel. But it is, I think, very important to note that that's a complicated, nuanced moral question which deserves a lot of attention. We'll mention one other boat. It's the Exodus. Everybody knows about the Exodus because of the famous movie with Paul Newman. 
Uh, the Exodus arrives in Haifa's port at the end of July 1947. It's carrying 4,500 survivors of the war. By July 1947, UNSCAP, that United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, is already meeting, and they hear that the Exodus is approaching the shores of Palestine, and the members of the United Nations Commission actually go to Haifa to see the boat when it lands, or, or docks. They're really very curious to see what happened. The British actually already killed a few members of the, of the staff of the Exodus when they boarded it prior to its docking in Haifa. But when it boarded in Haifa, they took the Jews off the Exodus and using batons and using fire hoses and all kinds of things, shepherded them off the Exodus onto another boat that was going to take them right back to Europe. Um, and the people from Unscot who saw this happening, who saw survivors of the Holocaust being treated so viciously by the British, it is said by those who were there then, were simply dismayed. And they themselves began to understand that the fact that the Second World War had ended did not mean that Jews were safe. And if the British, of all people, were going to treat the Jews this way, the UNSCOT members began to feel there really needed to be a place on the planet where the Jews would be responsible for their own destiny and for their own future. And UNSCOP issues its report not that long after, and it, just like the Peel Commission, uh, divides the land up. It says that the land should be divided into a Jewish state and an Arab state. It gives 55% of the land to Jews, 45% of the land to Arabs. So it actually gives more of the land to the Jews than the Peel Commission did, but that's because the Jewish population had grown enormously in those preceding 10 years. And it gives the Arabs 45% instead of the 75% that the Peel Commission had given to the Arab, uh, Arab state. Here are two numbers, though, that almost no one ever discusses when we talk about these two states that were created or were going to be created by the United Nations. The Jewish state that the UNSCOP maps would have proposed or did propose would have created a Jewish state of about 498,000 Jews and 407,000 Arabs. In other words, it would be barely over half Jewish, whereas the Arab state, according to the demography at that point, was going to create a state of about 725,000 Arabs and 10,000 Jews. So the Arab state was going to be almost completely Arab with virtually no Jews in it, and the Jewish state that UNSCOP wanted to create was going to be barely more than half Jewish as opposed to Arab. If the Arab community had said yes to that UNSCOT proposal, which the United Nations will eventually vote on, on November 29, 1947, we probably would not be having this conversation today. There probably wouldn't be a Jewish state, because the Arab state, which was overwhelmingly Arab, would have clearly stayed an Arab state, and the Jewish state, which was barely more than half Jewish, probably would not have been able to survive as a Jewish state for very long, given the demography of the entire region. But as happened in 1937 with Peel, that's exactly what happened in 1947 with UNSCOP. The Jewish community, very unhappy about those maps, said yes. The Arab community, very unhappy about those maps, said no. And that's when Israel's War of Independence actually begins. Phase one of the war will begin on November 29, 1947, when the UN votes to accept those maps. And there's really essentially at that point a civil war between the Jews in Palestine and the Arabs in Palestine as Jews and Arabs fight it out in the aftermath of that, of that UN vote. 
We're going to come to what happens in the War of Independence in our next segment. But before we end this segment, I just want to point to something that Theodore Herzl had written in his diary a very long time before. We mentioned in one of our earlier segments that Theodore Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress in 1897. After he convened that Zionist Congress in 1897 and the Congress was over, he wrote in his diary the following. He said, in Basel, I created the Jewish state. Now, all he had done, of course, was to bring 207 delegates together. But he was a man with a wild imagination, and he writes in his diary, in Basel, I created the Jewish state. And he says in his diary, if I were to say that publicly, everyone would laugh at me. But I know it's true. In five years or 10 years, or certainly no more than 50 years, there's going to be a Jewish state. That was in 1897. 1897 plus 50 is 1947. That's the year that the UN actually votes to create a Jewish state. Herzl hit the nail on the head. In 1897, he predicted that within 50 years, there would be a Jewish state. And within 50 years, exactly, the United Nations votes to create the Jewish state. What we'll look at in our next segment is how the beginning of that Jewish state actually unfolds. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.